Hi again. The more I look, the more old faces I see. Yet new because they have grown. I've seen them over the years. It just gives thanks to God for their faith. So happy to see the Cole family and the Prang family here. So praise the Lord that uh, we are together. Today I want to talk about something known as a little known thing called the Forgotten Promises. But I need to open my computer first. Okay. Um, obviously, by now you know I'm working a lot among the Muslim peoples. And uh, Muslim peoples, when we refer to them, we always re- talk about Ishmael, who is the elder son of Abraham. And we tend to refer to Islam as an Abrahamic faith. Well, I'm not so sure. But uh, I'm not sure sure whether it can qualify as an Abrahamic faith per se. But we will learn as we go along because we need to look at this question from the perspective of God's mission. Okay? So before Christ's return and the closing of this age in which we live and we can celebrate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, God the Father will fulfill all of his promises that he made to patriarch Abraham and to his people. You see the mountain over there? It's, uh, it's blowing, blowing its top, is it? You can see some smoke coming from the very top of the island, uh, on the mountain at the back. It's God blowing his top at his people, at the nations. Actually, as in the midst of all these things we hear about Israel and Palestine and so forth, we need to have our anchors rooted in what God has promised to the ancestors and the forefathers of the Palestinians and the Jews and the people of the land. You see, God, what is he doing today? Oh, I'm sorry. He is on a mission to reach the nations of the world. And rightly, if we look at Genesis 1, 3, 10, and 12, we'll find that God is a missionary God. He's not a God who made this world like clockwork and turned it up and then set it aside to run like a clock. No, not really. He's a God who's actively involved and he's not a deist. We are not deists. We, are, we, are, we know that our God is a living God and he's actively involved in bringing the people that he created back to himself through the only way that he has made possible, which is the cross of the Messiah, his son. So we need to be very conscious about that and this is rooted not just in the New Testament, it is very much in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the Psalms, and even in the writings of the prophets that we have today. So what is the mission of the triune God? Our God is triune. He is not a unit, but a unity. There's a difference between a God that's a unit and a God that's a unity. Islam's God is a unit, but not a unity. Ours is a triune God. God the Father, through His promised plan and by His redemptive acts, is actively reconciling the nations to himself. We can see that happening every day. You can see that happening. You saw that happen in the pictures I shared with you just now, in the people of Bali, in the people of Central Java and North Central Java. He is bringing people to himself, whether they come from the largest unreached people group in the world. And Jesus Christ, his son, he has embodied this mission and will also be accomplished or completed by him. So the Son is equally involved like the Father is. And then you have the Holy Spirit, 
God by His Spirit, He calls us and equips us to take part in God's mission today. So this is a very active role that we play. Yes, indeed, God is sovereign and He determines who gets saved. But at the same time, He will use you and me to be His instruments and agents of His love and His gospel to many out there who do not know Him because of sin, because they have been separated from the living God. Yes, we can look at this religion called Islam, which is claiming to be the fastest growing religion in the world. Why? Because we have one billion, over one billion people who call themselves Muslims worldwide. About one out of five people on earth is a Muslim. There are more than three million Muslims in here, in this country alone, in the USA, and growing. I believe this number has changed to five million now, over five million. In Canada, to the north of here, 30 percent are Muslim birth rate. One out of three new births is a Muslim birth. In France, it is even more severe, 50%. The Muslims have a birth rate of 50%, one in two uh, of new birth. Indonesia, where, I, where I'm so close to, uh, linked with, has more than 170 million Muslims. And yet, <clears throat> one thought that is more relevant to all of us is more than 50% or 34% of all the youth in the world under 15 years of age are Muslims. So when we grow up, when, we, when our children grow up, when their children grow up and mix around with people, they will, they will encounter Muslims and rub shoulders with them. And so we need to realize that there's a reality and we need to do a reality check, okay? So when we do meet with these folks, what do we say to them about the love of God? Because they claim to know Jesus already. They claim to have him as a prophet, but not as their priest and not as their king. So, and then they say that they know the way to heaven. We also say we have the way to heaven. Well, who's right and who's wrong? We've got to ask ourselves that question conscientiously. If God has a missionary plan for the nations, how does that relate to the Muslims? Let us consider these facts. In the Old Testament, there are four unique promises about Ishmael. In Genesis 16, 17 and 21. You can find four of them, four of these promises regarding Ishmael. Not Isaac, but Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants in the New Jerusalem are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. The uh, Nebaioth and Kedar will come and put offerings before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And these are the descendants of Ishmael. And then when we go to the New Testament, Christmas is around the corner, we hear the story of the Magi. The Magi, incidentally, are among the first nations to worship Christ, worship Jesus. They were following that star that finally landed over Bethlehem and they wanted to see this king so that they could offer him their gifts. These Magi come from the East and they know the promise of God, of the Messiah, to save the world. And then we look <clears throat> at the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, Gentile missionary to the Gentiles. In Galatians and 2 Corinthians, we hear an account, or we read an account of him going into Arabia. What for? Many people say he went to Arabia to meditate. Well, knowing the Apostle Paul, I think he's not just a meditation or, or someone who just meditates, but does, he's doing something more than that in the place of Arabia where he was 
he first went. Let's take a look <clears throat> at the four unique promises first, where the angel of Yahweh speaks to Hagar in Genesis 16. <clears throat> in Genesis 16, verses 7 to 10, the, we find the angel of the Lord discovering Hagar, locating Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that, beside, that is beside the road heading towards Shur, on the east of the Holy Land. This angel said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Who was her mistress? Her mistress was Sarai or Sarah. Okay? The angel also added to her, uh, to her, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too many, too numerous to count. That's a promise. A promise given to Hagar, which was not yet fulfilled, because this promise, this is the first promise from God. <clears throat> the angel, the angel of the Lord, am I here? The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child, and you will have a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard the cry of your affliction. So, Yishmael comes from two words. Ishmael comes from Yishma and El. Yishma means God will hear or God hears. El is God. So, God hears or will hear. It is similar in construct with Samuel. So, if you have a child or you are called Samuel, it's the same as Ishmael too, which means God hears. And then the angel continues by saying, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will dwell to the east of his kinfolk. The east of the Holy Land is Arabia today, at least northern Arabia, Syria, Lebanon, those areas, okay? And then Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her and said, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So in other words, there is a personal encounter and acknowledgement of the Almighty God who has called her for a specific purpose and a reason and told her, go back, go back to Sarah and I will continue my plans for you to make you a mother of many nations. Okay, now... Some people look at the phrase, a wild donkey. He'll be like a wild donkey. That's found in Genesis 16, verse 12. Is there a curse upon Ishmael's descendants? So one principle of hermeneutics or interpretation is, let a clear verse in another passage clarify the meaning of an obscure verse, a not-so-clear verse. And that you will find in Job. In Job 39, verse 5 to 8, God himself describes the nature of a wild donkey in this manner. He lives in freedom, he, he dwells in the desert, he shuns the noise of the towns, and he wanders about in search of food. In short, the lifestyle of a wild donkey is similar to the Bedouins of the Arabian and Syrian desert regions, the nomads, the nomadic tribes of that region. So what conclusion can we draw from these two verses in Genesis, uh, in Genesis and also in Job? 
Genesis 16.12, therefore, is not a curse upon Ishmael and his descendants. Rather, it is a prophetic description of a lifestyle characteristic of the Arab nomads or Bedouins. So if you have been to that part of the world, you will know what I mean. So there are four unique promises, and we saw one already. There's a second one that is in Genesis chapter 17. And verse 18, Abraham appealed to God and said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, O God. Because he didn't want Ishmael to die. Because Ishmael was the firstborn male of him, of, of Abraham's. Then God said, No, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and, I, and you shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So this verse is extremely important because Isaac is the son of promise and God will continue his line through Isaac to fulfill his promise to Abraham of making him a father of many nations. Okay? Now we look at verse 6 of Genesis 17 and verse 20 after that. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. So we can look this in verse 20 of 17 and also verse 6. So when God said, let us go up there and look at verse, eight, uh, at verse 19. Then God said, no. Is, the, is God saying, because this was a direct answer to the verse that came before that, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham was appealing to God to let Ishmael live and not die. And then God came with an answer, no. Does it mean that God is saying, no, Ishmael shall die or Ishmael will not live? No, that's not it. Because if that's the case, why would he give his promise in verse 20? That God will bless him and make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. That won't happen and can't happen if Ishmael was struck dead. So no does not mean no Ishmael shall die, but no, your wife will bear you another son. This is his real wife, not the handmaiden of Sarah, Hagar. Okay? So God will establish his covenant with the Jews, with the people of the Jews who came through Isaac. Because Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of 12 tribes the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's promise will continue to flow, but not through the Arabs, but through the Jews, through the Israelites. Because Jesus himself said, salvation is from the Jews to the Samaritan woman. You remember the conversation? Well, we worship here on Mount Horeb. You worship there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We are not the same. We are very different. Go away from me. I, I don't want to hear your preaching. Jesus says, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You got it wrong. The day is coming when you, you will not worship here or the Jews will worship there because God seeks worshippers who will worship Him. How? In spirit and in truth, right? So you do not need a place like Jerusalem or Mount Horeb or even Mecca or Medina to find God, to worship Him there. God cancelled that. Jesus cancelled that altogether when He spoke in John 4, salvation is from the Jews. What was He doing? He was referring to Himself. What tribe was Jesus from? Anybody remember Bible trivia? I know you like it. 
Judah. Jesus was from Judah. He's known as the Lion of Judah, right? And Judah and Benjamin were the last two tribes that survived the Great Divide. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Eventually, the ten tribes became the lost tribes. They were dispersed by the Assyrians, by, by Babylonians, and so on, except for Judah and Benjamin. And Jesus, the Lion of Judah, came to save us from our sins, to fulfill the prophecy that God gave and the promise that God gave of fulfilling and establishing his covenant as an everlasting covenant. So salvation is not from the Arabs, not from Muhammad, but from Jesus Christ, who was from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> so in Genesis 17, 19 to 20, in the light of God's mission, Isaac receives the blessing of a promised covenant. The, the, the covenant that he has promised Adam, Eve, and now coming down through Abraham and the 12 tribes. Whereas Ishmael also receives the promise of a blessing. Our God is a fair God. He's a just God. He does not abandon the people that has been involved in his plans. You see, he will fulfill his covenant through Isaac, but he will also bless Ishmael, not with an everlasting covenant, but by making him a great nation, according to Genesis 17. Isaac and his descendants are destined to be the agents of God's mission. Whereas Ishmael and his descendants are destined to be who? To be what? Unique recipients of God's mission. This will come clear and unfold as you see the verses to come. All right? The fulfillment of the, seven, the Genesis 17:20 promise is multidimensional. Firstly, it is a literal physical fulfillment in Genesis 25. There will be an actual 12 tribes and 12 princes. Secondly, there's also a spiritual fulfillment of this promise, and this is captured in, Genesis, uh, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 6 to 7, and confirmed in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 and 29. So Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. What promise? The one in Genesis 17, verse 19. So we are all heirs of that great promise that God gave thousands of years ago to Father Abraham. Even though we are not Jews. I'm, I'm sorry, there might be some Jews here, Messianic Jews. But by and large, we are Gentiles, right? And we don't have any hope of coming into that promise except for the fact that God gave a spiritual fulfillment through Jesus Christ, his son, who was a promised Messiah to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth, not just to the Jews, but to the whole wide world. And now we are here today, enjoying that salvation through Jesus Christ. We have celebrated the Lord's Supper. We have enjoyed the Holy Communion, the, the foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why, that's all because of the promise that we have through Isaac. And there are four unique promises. God assures Abraham and Hagar that Ishmael will also become a great nation. I am not pro-Arab or whatever, but I'm just trying to be biblical, all right? Uh, God does bless, and God is a just God. He is fair. He will fulfill his covenant through Isaac, but he's also given a promise to Ishmael, and we need to realize that, okay? Now, Sarah saw Ishmael playing with Isaac. Therefore, she cried suddenly, "'Cast out the slave woman and her son.'" For Ishmael shall not inherit 
my properties. You see, the angel then replied, what, uh, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants will be named. And I will name, I will also make the son of the maidservant into a nation because he is your offspring. He here refers to Ishmael, okay? And in 21 verse 18 of Genesis, God heard the lad crying. And the angel of the Lord called out to Hagar, lift up the boy, lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him a great nation. This is not referring to Isaac. This is referring to Ishmael. And God still has compassion and mercy on him, even though he was the son of the maidservant, not of the wife of Abraham. God is a just God. He is gracious. He is fair. And he blesses both. But his covenant, he will fulfill through the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. So, God was with the lad. This is his providence in the wilderness as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. I'm sure some of you like bows and arrows, right? Uh, He lived in the desert and became an archer, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife from him, sorry, a wife for him from the land of Egypt. That's what Genesis 21 verse 21 says. So when we look at the dispersal of Ishmael's descendants, we'll find that many of them are on the right of the holy land, of the promised land. You have Kedar, Nafish, Yetur, Nebaioth, Duma, and so on. These are all the lands of the princes of Ishmael, his offspring, his children, right? So the holy land where Jerusalem is, where Gaza is, is on the left side. This is the land flowing with milk and honey, that is promised to Isaac and the Jews. So they fulfilled that promise by occupying the land flowing with milk and honey because that was the place where the 12 tribes of Israel will spring forth from. All right? So Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him a whole bunch of children also. I'm not going to pronounce those names. They're quite unpronounceable. (laughs) But you, you can see for yourself, okay? Now, that's in Genesis 25, verse 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mipsam, and so on and so forth, right? Now, Nebaioth, the firstborn, they were the, uh, the ancestors of the Nabataeans. You remember the Nabataean Arabs, the kings uh, who's, who came, came from the east, Okay, they were descendants of Nebaioth. Nebaioth was the great-grandparent of the Nabataeans. You can see the similarity in their names. For what purpose did God preserve Ishmael and make him a great nation? Is it to persecute the Jews? It's more than that. The answer appears in Isaiah chapter 60. God has a missionary plan to bring salvation to the non-covenant peoples who have sprung forth from Abraham and Ishmael. All right? So bear with me as we go and look at this. Can you see this, people here? Do they look like camels? Or they are, what, what are they doing? You don't see their heads, you see their, their bums. They are basically bowing down towards Mecca. These are the Muslims, the spiritual descendants of the Arabs. All right? 
<coughs> the descendants of Ishmael and the new Jerusalem. If you can read that. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 7. A day will come when people from all nations and tongues will worship the king in Jerusalem. Isaiah 60 verse 6, 9 and 13. But notice that, notice something very unique, very, very important. It is Abraham's Arabian descendants who are mentioned first. Who are these descendants, Arabians? Okay, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 says, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All from, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, these are all the descendants of Hagar. Okay, the other side. <clears throat> all Kedah's flocks will be gathered unto you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. This is from Isaiah 60, verse 7. When you say they will be, they will be accepted as offerings on my altar, it will be through Jesus Christ, not through Islam. Okay, God will accept Everyone's, everyone's offerings and worship only through Christ. And this is a prophecy of the salvation of the Muslims. The nations who come to Jerusalem fall into three groups. Firstly, Midian, Ephah, and Sheba. These are the sons of Keturah, one of Abraham's wives. And also Kedar and Nebaioth, the Nabataeans and the Kedarites. Who are they? These are the sons of Ishmael. They represent the descendants of Shem and Abraham in Isaiah 60. The ships of Tarsish, who represent the descendants of Japheth, Tarsus and Tarshish. Sound familiar? Paul came from there. All right, verse 9 of 60. The glory of Lebanon, which represents the descendants of Ham. Verse 13. The first to come, however, to worship God with acceptance are the non-covenant descendants of Abraham. Because God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham and Hagar. Not just to Sarah, but also to Hagar, the, the maidservant of Sarah. Okay. So what can we expect then, dear brothers and sisters, as the eschatological age draws closer, as we see events happening, fomenting? We can see increasing signs of God's visitation among the descendants of Ishmael. In other words, God is revealing and speaking himself to the Arabs and to the Muslims. For the past 25 years, in fact, I would say 30 years now, reports have come from around the world of Islam that tell of Jesus Christ revealing himself to Muslims in dreams and in visions. And by them reading the Bible and learning for themselves the true word of God, which they cannot find in their Quran, resulting in dramatic conversions. Conversions to Christ, of course. We have seen that in the Old Testament, God revealed a plan to bring salvation to the descendants of Ishmael. But what about the New Testament? Do we find there also any additional confirmation that God actually has such a promised plan for Muslims? Well, as I said, Christmas is around the corner. You talked about Operation Shoebox, no, Samaritan's Purse. Okay, here we see the Magi. Everybody loves this story, right? The Magi who travelled from afar to look for the promised child. 
This is an initial fulfillment, you know, actually, an initial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6 to 7. In Matthew 2, verse 1 and 11, we find Magi from the east arrived, and they fell down and worshipped him. Worshipped him who? The Christ child. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All right? So these are the gifts that they brought along to offer the promised one, who is Jesus Christ. Who were they? Who were the Magi? Well, church tradition identifies them as Persians, Babylonians, and Arabs, as you can see. So it is not surprising if the Arab who came from the East came also to offer gifts to the Christ child because they knew of the promise of God to Eve and to Abraham. So let's take a look at how there is some support for Arabian origin. They came from the East. It's a designation in the Bible for Arabia. The earliest church fathers, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Epiphanes, they assert their Arabian origin, that these people were Arabs. The Magi was also of Arab origin. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the products of Arabia also. You find lots of these things produced in that part of the world of that time. And the Magi cult, it was present among some of the ancient tribes of North Arabia. So it appears, dear brothers and sisters, that Matthew understands verse chapter 2, verse 11, as a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, chapter 6 to 7, that God will receive the offerings of the people from the east who come from the Arabian region. So therefore, the first Gentiles to worship Christ were probably Arabs as well. So let's note this fact that God himself led these Arabian Magi to worship the Christ child. God was behind the journey of the Magi's to Bethlehem. And they asked and inquired where this king of the Jews will be so that they can worship him. These were non-Jews offering worship to the king of the Jews. And God gave them one more sign and gave us one more sign to this end. When? When he sent the apostle Paul into Arabia. Now look at that map and ask this question, why? Did Paul go to Arabia, as you can see? All right, he was from Damascus. He got converted. He started persecuting the church. Oh, no, sorry, he persecuted the church first, and then he got converted. And then after that, what did he do? He ran away to Arabia. For what? Okay, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 17. 16 to 17 says, But when God, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among who? The Gentiles. So he was a great missionary, the great Jewish missionary to the Gentiles. Paul was not a Gentile, he was a Jew. Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said. But who were the first people that he wanted to convert? Not the Jews, but the Gentiles. That's why he went into Arabia. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but I went immediately into where? Into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. That's in Galatians 1, 16 to 17. Some scholars may think <clears throat> excuse me, that Paul went to Arabia in order to reflect and meditate and integrate his experience on the Damascus road with his Judaism. But I would, 
I, I propose to you that Paul's journey to Arabia seems more connected to his commission to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. So we need to ask another question. Why did Aritas, the Nabatean king, Nabatean Arab king, wish to seize Paul upon his return to Damascus? In 2 Corinthians 11, 32, we find Paul saying, In Damascus, the ethnarch under King Aritas had the city under guard in order to do what? In order to arrest me, Paul. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and I slipped through his hands. So escaping has a part in evangelism too. Escaping from your tormentors, escaping from your persecutors, escaping from those who want to kill you because you preach the gospel. That's also a part. It doesn't mean cowardice. It doesn't mean running away. It means wisdom. So there is a place for boldness. There is a place for escaping, running away. And this is what Paul did. He ran away in a basket through a window in the high wall and ran away from King Aritas. In his comments on 2 Corinthians 11.32, scholar Terence Donaldson says, One does not arouse the anger of a ruler by engaging in a period of silence and meditation or seclusion. Instead, these references probably indicate that Paul was engaged in what? In Gentile evangelization from the start, from the very beginning. Paul, from the get-go, was already a preacher. He was already a missionary for the gospel of Christ. So he was involved in Gentile evangelism from the start. And this King Aritas was Aritas number four, Aritas the fourth. So the conclusion is this, the Nabatean Arabs were the first Gentiles to whom Paul preached the gospel. And that got him into trouble. So much so that the ruler of the Nabateans wanted to arrest him and to kill him, but he escaped. So in summary, the following facts highlight God's priority in reaching the descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael is the first of the non-covenant peoples to receive a divine blessing. The Arabs and Ishmaelites are the first of the nations to come to the new Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 60 to present their gifts on the temple altar. The Magi, who are probably Arabian, are among the first of Matthew's Gentiles to worship the Christ child in Matthew chapter 2 in Bethlehem. And then thirdly or fourthly, the Arabs are the first Gentiles to whom Paul preached the gospel. Interesting, isn't it? The Nabatean Arabs. This coming and going to first, coming to first and going to first does not represent human initiative. Rather, it represents God's divine intervention according to His providential plans. So what are we going to do when we see these people, these Muslims here? How should we respond when we consider these people groups? God's missionary burden for the descendants of Ishmael. On two occasions, God reached down to save the life of Hagar and Ishmael. We find it in Genesis 16 and 21. This represents God's missionary heart and compassion. Three other scriptural passages refer to God's priority in terms of divine visitation upon the descendants of who? Of Ishmael. Are we, as the church today, in step with God's plan for Ishmael and his descendants? 
One way to answer this question is, questions is to ask what percentage of all missionaries are focusing their ministry and time among Muslims. If you look at this pie chart here, in terms of international missionaries and missions, 90, only 5% of their giving is for Muslims, whereas 95% is focused on non-Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists, and communists, and capitalists, but not the Muslims. And these Muslims are over 1 billion people. However, we only focus 5% of our support on them. What does he tell us? What does this show, my dear friends? It shows only one thing, that we have ignored the promise of God to the, to the Ishmaelites. Has the church become like Sarah who said, cast out the born woman and her son, throw her out, get her away. She doesn't deserve anything from the Lord. So with that thought, I wish to, to you know, I'm not going to go to these com commonly asked questions. I hope uh, today you have seen the heart of God, the fairness of God and His justice for the people of Isaac and for the people of Ishmael in Genesis, as well as today, how the Apostle Paul, the great missionary apostle, understood this and immediately involved himself in the plans and the, the works of God to save the Arabs and the descendants of Ishmael to Christ. With that thought, I leave you with a hope that you will see the missionary heart of God as found in the Old and the New Testament for his descendants of Ishmael. Thank you. Chris, if you want to come up, we'll... That was, uh, that was a whole lot right there, in a good way. That was a lot of theology. Uh, yeah, that was wonderful reminders and just some truth about where we come from, right? This, it's not just the New Testament, right? We're not simply New Testament Christians. All of the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament. That's part of what Brother George was showing today. The richness, all the tie-ins, the prophecies, the promises, it... That's one of the fascinating things about the Bible. It's just so rich. It's simple enough a child can get it, but it's deep and strategic and complex enough that it'll take us our entire lives to figure it out. That was very cool. Thank you. In light of all that, um, will you stand with us and let's sing the doxology as we close out.